0: In 1938, a Dr. Henry Walton Jones Jr. and his father, Dr. Henry Jones Sr., boarded a D-138 airship out of Berlin bound for Athens to escape Germany with Henry Sr.'s diary. Recently autographed by Adolf Hitler and depicting clues regarding the whereabouts of the Holy Grail of Jesus Christ, while being pursued by SS officer Ernst Vogel. At a critical juncture in the getaway, Junior evaded Vogel's presence by cleverly de-uniforming a steward on the dirigible. While Ernst continued to search the ship, the younger Dr. Jones played the part of the steward walking around inspecting tickets of passengers. And just as Officer Vogel discovered Henry Sr.'s face behind displayed newspaper, Junior, still in a subordinate uniform, promptly cold-cocked the Nazi and threw him out the window before expertly explaining to the aghast crowd that the SS officer did not have a ticket. Understandably, these events provoked the entire manifest of Voyagers to quickly fish through their handbags for their bills of passage. Seemingly in the clear, the two men enjoyed a celebratory cocktail, whose glasses swiftly turned from half full to half empty when they realized that the aircraft was turning back to Germany. So, the pair of adventurers decided to hop into a biplane being carried by the D-138. And if you haven't figured it out by now, I am describing a scene from Indiana Jones in the Last Crusade a celluloid classic that greatly contributed to my interest in history at age 11, and to this very day, has one of my all-time favorite getaway tactics that leads up to the scene that I just described. When Harrison Ford steals a motorcycle, and Sean Connery is riding shotgun in the sidecar, and the two are chased by motorbiking Nazis, and Indy jams a rod into the spokes of one of his pursuer's wheels, thereby catapulting the soldier through the air. So cool. I love a movie stunt that would work in real life. But historically, it should be noted that the Jones boys' airplane escape from the D-138 out of Berlin is an erroneous pivotal plot point in the film because German dirigibles of the time were unable to hold airplanes to their undercarriage. Though their U.S. counterparts, the American USS McCone and USS Akron, did have such capabilities. But hey, I can forgive it. Movies get stuff wrong all the time. And I don't want to talk smack about a film that I love. Here is a widely agreed-upon list of motion pictures that are acclaimed to be prodigiously accurate with historical facts. A Night to Remember, The Lion in Winter, Torah, 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 All the President's Men, Das Boot, Schindler's List, Apollo 13, Downfall, Zodiac, 12 Years a Slave, Spotlight, Lincoln, The Last Emperor, Come and See, and Gettysburg. But there is one film featuring a dirigible that is 100% historically accurate because it was real. The Crashing of the LZ-129 Hindenburg a rigid airship with a metal skeleton separated by a series of singular vapor cells filled with a lighter-than-air gas. Scatter curiosity, while it is correct to refer to the Hindenburg as a Zeppelin, it is important to understand that Zeppelin is the name of the German company that made rigid airships. Therefore... All zeppelins are rigid airships, but not all rigid airships are zeppelins. And the word dirigible means the same thing as airship, stemming from the French word diriger, to steer. A blimp, like the Goodyear blimp, is a pressure airship. What makes it different from a rigid airship is lack of the metal frame and individual gas cells. A pressure airship is sort of like a giant balloon with a compartment on the bottom. The Hindenburg was not a blimp, but rather one of the last leaded balloons that ouched humanity. In 1874, Count Ferdinand von Zeppelin began mental development of the airships that would one day bear his name while he was observing surveillance balloons that were used by the United States Union Army during the Civil War. He envisioned his aircrafts to be used for a worldwide postal service and strive to make the enterprise a reality for nearly two decades. And just before the turn of the century, Ferdinand's dirigibles were patented in both his native Germany and the United States. Zeppelin became synonymous for all such airships. The maiden flight of the LZ-1, or Luftschiff Zeppelin, took place in 1900 over Lake Constance, a body of water near Zeppelin's factory that borders Germany, Austria, and Switzerland. As with most innovations, bugs and kinks needed to be worked through the subsequent models LZ-2, and LZ-3, which finally attracted the attention of the German military who ordered production of the fourth generation. The LZ-4 attempted to make its maiden round-trip voyage, 240 miles at 2,600 feet off the ground, within a 24-hour time span. It didn't make it. Mechanical issues forced a landing amid a storm that blew the ship from the mooring, which forced it into a tree and sparked a fire. Remarkably, there were zero fatalities in this crash. Now, you would think that this incident would put the kibosh on the LZ program, but investors still saw potential in the Curiosity and funded the Zeppelin Foundation with a purse of more than 6 million marks. By 1910, the LZ-7 through LZ-10 models were being used for commercial flights and had logged in more than 1,500 trips carrying more than 10,000 travelers in just four years. Kaiser Wilhelm II and the Imperial German Navy commissioned their first Zeppelin in 1912, which would ever after be labeled with a Z in place of the LZ for military models. The floating cruise ships were looked upon very differently at the onset of World War I, when Germany used them for reconnaissance missions and air raids on Great Britain, earning Zeppelins the unfavorable nickname Baby Killer. However, it should be noted that not every rigid airship that dropped bombs for Germany was a Zeppelin. Schutelands and Parseval also had military contracts to build dirigibles. At the war's conclusion, the German airship industry was put to a halt as the Treaty of Versailles demanded surrender of the asset to the Allies and forbade the production of more of them. After eight years, those sanctions were lifted and the company was able to resume manufacture of its new Graf Zeppelin, providing commercial flights between Germany, Brazil, and North America. The United States took notice of Germany's airlining success and ordered some dirigibles to be built that would come out of Germany's reparation budget. The LZ-126 flew 5,000 miles in 80 hours and 45 minutes. American crowds went nuts, and Calvin Coolidge invited the crew of LZ-126 to the White House and referred to the aircraft as a, quote, angel of peace. It was renamed ZR 3 USS Los Angeles and flew for nearly a decade before being dismantled. Scatter Curiosity, the spire on the top of the Empire State Building, was initially intended to be used to moor Zeppelins and similar aircraft, but was found to be unsuitable due to strong winds at such a high altitude. With business booming, Zeppelin was soon building the much bigger LZ-129 Hindenburg, named for Paul von Hindenburg, commander of the German military in World War I and president of Germany, until he appointed Chancellor Adolf Hitler. LZ-129 made transatlantic flights between Germany, Brazil, and the United States and was operated by the German Zeppelin Airline Company. And by the end of the Roaring Twenties, Hindenburg's sister ship the Graf Zeppelin, commanded by Dr. Hugo Eckner, had another goal in mind. Circumnavigation of the Planet. Newspaper mogul William Randolph Hearst insisted that the tour start in Lakehurst, New Jersey and was to carry his reporter Grace Marguerite Hay Drummond Hay on it, making her the first female to circumnavigate the world by aircraft. It went from Lakehurst to Germany to Tokyo to Los Angeles and then back to Lakehurst. Little did people realize that just before the Hindenburg and Groff Zeppelin gained world recognition as a sightseeing wonder for the lavish and elite, they were being used to distribute Nazi propaganda via leaflets and broadcasting speeches underscored by martial music, an action abhorred by Hugo Eckner, which in turn was a reaction that propaganda minister Joseph Goebbels abhorred. Therefore, Eckner's name and photograph would be prohibited from newspapers and periodicals. Briefly. The rigid airship whose May 6th, 1937 crash we are all so familiar with was only in service for 14 months. But most of us are only kind of conversant with the crash and know nothing about the shipstery itself. So, let's get versant. The Hindenburg was designed with an upper A deck strewn with tiny windowless passenger rooms in the center, reserving public areas outside of them for viewing the scenery and mingling with other passengers. The idea being that people would not spend tons of time in their rooms. The lower B deck had bathrooms, the kitchen, and believe it or not a smoking room that could only be accessed via an airlock doorway to prevent hydrogen from leaking in and starting a fire. Now, you might be wondering why hydrogen was used at all instead of the safer non-flammable gas, helium. Well, at the time, helium was rare and only available in large quantities to the United States as part of the Helium Control Act prohibiting export of the element. Hydrogen was cheaper and lighter than helium, and because of Hindenburg's successful first year commuting between Rio de Janeiro and Frankfurt, the public assumed that Germany had simply figured out a way to use hydrogen safely. Scatter curiosity, American Airlines was partnered with the Hindenburg's itinerary as many of the passengers had connecting American flights out of Newark Airport, and they were to be bused from Lakehurst. On the day of the debacle... Hindenburg was already behind schedule and even held later due to weather reports of a thunderstorm in the area. So to bide time, Captain Max Pruss thought it would be nice to give the passengers a bird's eye view of Manhattan and likewise the New Yorkers on the ground who got to get a good look at one of them Their baby killers. Once it was determined that the storms had passed, Captain Pruss, now several hours late, made his way towards Lakehurst. Upon arriving to the airfield's windy vicinity, the ground crew scrambled to get into position, while Hindenburg performed a circling descent for 20 minutes, lowering its altitude by 364 feet when it started to lightly rain again. And four minutes later, the Hindenburg was inexplicably engulfed in flames that spread as rapidly as the varying accounts of what exactly had happened. Witness testimony simply could not agree where the fire started, even though there were at least four cameras filming the incident from the ground, none of which reveals the origin of the blaze, leading some to suspect sabotage from within. As gas was lost from the stern or back of the ship, The bow stayed high in the air, causing LZ-129 to crash on an angle in less than 40 seconds. Hindenburg hit the ground and then bounced back up in the air before finally setting on terra firma. It is amazing to think that anyone could survive such an incident, but many people did carrying scars of severe burns for the rest of their lives. Most of the unfortunate souls who did perish in the tragic accident did so by fire, whereas others died from jumping out of windows, being crushed by falling structural debris, and, most commonly, smoke inhalation and nine of the survivors of the initial crash died shortly thereafter from their gruesome burns. And while this is arguably the most well-known airship wreckage, it was not the deadliest. The USS Akron went down off the New Jersey coast four years prior and killed twice as many people. Also, the British R-38 in 1921 had 44 dead. The French Dixmude in 1923 left 52 dead. And the British R-101 in 1930 left 48 dead. But most of these were military ships, not a luxury cruise liner carrying civilians. There were even some people on the Hindenburg who miraculously made it off the wreckage completely unharmed. In fact, most of the victims were crew members, 22 dead versus the 13 passengers who died. And of the 39 crewmen who survived, one of them lived to be 92 years old, Werner Franz who was a cabin boy in the Hindenburg's kitchen who was putting dishes away at the time of the wreck, and a tank burst above Werner's head, drenching him in life-saving water, allowing Franz to escape through the kitchen's loading door. The last surviving passenger was only eight years old, when the infamous shipwreck claimed half of his family's life. In addition to the iconic newsreel we are most familiar with, there was also film footage from within the cabin, thanks to an acrobatic vaudeville performer by the name of Joseph Spa, who had been documenting the landing from inside. Once the fire started... Joseph broke the window and hung from the ledge until he could safely execute a gymnast landing from about 20 feet off the ground. His tuck-and-roll score would have only earned him a six in the Olympics, though, because he suffered an ankle injury that resigned him to a hurried limp before ultimately being rescued by a groundsman who helped him escape the flames. The iconic phrase, Oh, the humanity, was uttered by radio journalist Herbert Ogilvie Morrison. Herb was sent by WLS Chicago to narrate Hindenburg's arrival for a delayed radiocast meaning that it would be recorded and aired later. A pretty run-of-the-mill account for Herb until the dirigible suddenly burst into flames while preparing to dock. And I encourage you to go online and listen to the broadcast in its entirety to give you the dramatic effect. But here is how it went so you can get a feel for how fast this all happened. Quote, It's practically standing still now. They've dropped the ropes out of the nose of the ship, and, uh, they've been taken a hold of down the field by a number of men. It's starting to rain again. It's, the rain had, uh, slacked up a little bit. The back motors of the ship are just holding it, just enough to keep it from... It's burst into flames. Get this Charlie. Get this Charlie. It's fire and it's crashing. It's crashing terrible. Oh my. Get out of the way, please. It's burning and bursting into flames and the and it's falling on the mooring mast and all the folks agree that this is terrible. This is the worst of the worst catastrophes in the world. Oh, it's it's flames crashing. Oh, Four or five hundred feet into the sky, and it... It's a terrific crash, ladies and gentlemen. It's smoke, and it's in flames now. And the frame is crashing to the ground, not quite to the mooring mast. Oh, the humanity. And all the passengers screaming around here. I told you, it... I can't even talk to people. There are friends on there. Ah! It's... It... It's a... Ah! I... I can't talk, ladies and gentlemen. Honest, it's just laying there. Massive smoking wreckage. Ah, and everybody can hardly breathe and talk and the screaming. I, I, I'm sorry. Honest, I, I can hardly breathe. I, I'm going to step inside where I cannot see it. Charlie, that's terrible. Ah, uh, I can't. Listen, folks, I, I'm going to have to stop for a minute because I've lost my voice. This is the worst thing I've ever witnessed, end quote. That is the account we all got to hear. But Herb Morrison and his engineer Charlie Nelson continued to cover the rescue team efforts and interview survivors for hours after the catastrophe. The recorded tapes were immediately flown to Chicago to be aired the same evening. And it was the first coast-to-coast radio broadcast brought to you by NBC Radio. Herb's account of the disaster was later dubbed onto the newsreel film. At this point of his career, Morrison's usual announcing assignments were for live musical shows. But prior to that, he was keen to aerial reporting of floods in the Midwest. So his expertise in flight was employed for what would have been a routine landing of an airship. And though the Hindenburg transmission brought him to fame, he bravely chose to enter the Air Force amid American involvement in World War II, before returning to Pittsburgh and becoming the news director at WTAE-TV, who ran for Congress three times. And one of Herb Morrison's last contributions to bringing the truth was working as a technical advisor for the 1975 movie The Hindenburg. If you are like me, you probably think that a gas leak fire of hydrogen or helium would be far more dangerous than a wood fire or a gasoline one. But in the case of the Hindenburg, once the gas cells were pierced, the hydrogen rose above the people where it smoldered up into the atmosphere within 90 seconds. So, what happened? You could almost pick your favorite theory. Do you like sabotage? Lightning? Static? St. Elmo's fire? Engine failure? Pilot error? That stupid smoking room? Well, according to most people observing from below, the Hindenburg burned. It did not explode. The ground crew claimed static. Captain Max Pruss had been at the helm of every outing of the Hindenburg and believed it was the victim of sabotage. After all, rigid airships were a safe means of travel and Pruss had flown dirigibles through rough weather before unharmed. His head officers bought into the sabotage theory because they refused to believe that pilot or engineering error was possible and agreed that if it was indeed treachery, a passenger would be the culprit. Namely, our acrobat Joseph Spa, who had been traveling with a German shepherd named Ulla, he was bringing to his children as a pet... But the dog wasn't allowed to travel in the main cabin. Ulla was kept away from passengers in Hindenburg's freight room. The suspected spa was said to have made several trips to visit the dog, had made numerous anti-Nazi remarks during the flight, and was the only one capable of climbing Hindenburg's rigging to hook up an explosive device. This version of the story was made into a book and then a film aptly named The Hindenburg. But it should be noted that there is zero evidence to support these claims from the German or American investigations of the disaster. No pieces of a bomb were ever recovered. And the author of the Hindenburg was quite clear to point out that it was merely a theory. An exhaustive number of investigations have been done in the past 80 years with mixed results. But the likely cause of Hindenburg's demise seems to have been static electricity created by the elements interacting with wet ropes tethered between the ship's metal frame to the mooring dock, thereby setting fire to the hydrogen cells and skin of the airship. The book LZ-129 Hindenburg cites a ground-level source to the mid-May misfortune. Quote, I have located an observer, Professor Mark Heald of Princeton, New Jersey, who undoubtedly saw St. Elmo's fire flickering along the airship's back a good minute before the fire broke out. Standing outside the main gate to the naval air station, he watched, together with his wife and son, as the zeppelin approached the mast and dropped her bow lines. A minute thereafter, by Mr. Heald's estimation... He first noticed a dim blue flame flickering along the backbone girder about one quarter the length from the bow to the tail. There was time enough for him to remark to his wife, Oh heavens, the thing is a fire!" For her to reply, Where? And for him to answer, Up along the top ridge, before there was a big burst of flaming hydrogen from a point he estimated to be about one-third the ship's length from the stern, end quote. However, this is just one of the many accounts of the 1937 shipwreck. Testimony from groundsmen on duty that evening point the finger to engine failure during the landing process. This theory is dismissed by modern experts, however, because the engine's exhaust was incapable of reaching the 500 degrees it would take to set the hydrogen on fire. Plus, the flames were on top of the Zeppelin and not where the engine was. The review of the misfortune by the National Aeronautics and Space Administration, you know, the thing before Space Force, blamed regular old lightning, explaining that though the Hindenburg had been struck in past flights, during the Lakehurst descent, it was releasing hydrogen and a chance spark of electricity ignited the gas and mixed with its highly flammable counterpart, Oxygen. A special on the Discovery Channel in 2012, titled What Destroyed the Hindenburg, tested some of the prevailing theories, and favored Mark healed St. Elmo's fire version. Damn you, Brat Pack. The Mythbusters came to a similar conclusion a mixture of leaking hydrogen ignited by an electric spark. Yet controversy surrounds even this theory, as some have argued that the hydrogen that filled the Hindenburg's individual gas cells was purposely odorized to smell like garlic in the event of a leak to warn the crew but there have been no witness testimonies mentioning the smell of garlic. If you care to hedge your own investigation on the demise of commercial flights by rigid airships, a plaque commemorates a portion of the gondola's crash site in Lakehurst, New Jersey. Tours of the location can be arranged through a pre-registration process. Field trip The phrase, Oh the Humanity, has been referenced in pop culture through satire, from the crashing of the Duff Blimp on The Simpsons, to WKRP in Cincinnati, to the live-action film How the Grinch Stole Christmas. But perhaps the most controversial recall of the ruination of Count Ferdinand von Zeppelin's life work was a sketch of the famous Sam Shearer picture of the Hindenburg bursting into flames used as the cover of the 1969 self-titled rock album Led L-E-D, Zeppelin, a band that originated in London one year prior and is considered to be one of the first heavy metal bands with music rooted in blues, folk, and psychedelic rock. This album's design was met with opposition from the Count's widow, Frau Eva von Zeppelin, who threatened to sue the group over use of the name Zeppelin. But the case was dismissed. The band would be plagued by various litigation ever after. Scatter curiosity led Zeppelin did change its name for one performance only in Copenhagen on February 28th, 1970. They performed as the Knobs. No K. The gang consisted of lead guitarist Jimmy Page, drummer John Bonham, John Paul Jones on keys, and singer Robert Plant. Their music was heavily influenced by the blues of Muddy Waters and Howlin' Wolf, following the 12-bar blues structure for a wide catalog of their songs, but were not timid about experimenting with such flavors as reggae, jazz, funk, and country music. Prior to the formation of Led Zeppelin, Jimmy Page was in another well-known band, the Yarbirds, alongside rock royalty Jeff Beck. Page had envisioned a supergroup consisting of himself, Jeff Beck, Keith Moon, and John Entwistle that never came to be. But he did record one track with Moon, Beck, and John Paul Jones in 1966 ...called Bex Bolero. Because the Yarbirds had disbanded... ...before fulfilling concert engagements in Scandinavia... ...Jimmy Page and Yarbirds bassist Chris Dreha... ...were given permission to keep the train a-rollin... ...and finish the tour with new members... ...Robert Plant, John Bonham... ...and eventually John Paul Jones... When Dreha left the group, they toured as the New Yarbirds. After all obligations of the contract were effectuated, the group was no longer allowed to keep the name The New Yarbirds. Legend has it that Led Zeppelin was born out of a comment made by Keith Moon and John Entwistle about how Jimmy Page's Jeff Beck supergroup fantasy would have gone down like a quote, lead balloon, a turn of phrase illustrating disaster. Balloon evolved into Zeppelin and lead, L-E-A-D, into lead, L-E-D, to dissuade people from incorrectly pronouncing it lead. Zeppelin, the newly christened band's manager, Peter Grant, negotiated a $143,000 advance from Atlantic Records, the largest at the time for an unheard of band, which also gave the group control over album releases, tour dates, advertising of new songs, release of singles, and of course album design. Houses of the Holy, their fifth album, is the first Zeppelin CD that I ever purchased after seeing the Beavis and Butthead video for Over the Hills in Far Away. And it too had a controversial cover that seemed to depict naked children climbing North Ireland's giant causeway. Despite the fact that they were not shown from the front. The group was strict about their albums being listened to from beginning to end and did not like the idea of tracks being released as singles. Distribution in the UK fell in line with the band's wishes, but there is no denying that their popularity in the United States owes a great deal to the single release From Led Zeppelin 2, Whole Lotta Love, which hit number four in the Billboard charts. And even with this worldwide acclaim, Led Zeppelin shirked from television appearances, insisting their fans see the flamboyantly costumed group live on a stage engulfed in elaborate lights and lasers. A touring phenomenon Led Zeppelin was known for its spectacular stage shows. So much so that North American concert attendance in 1973 surpassed previously set records and their crowd turnout of 56,800 leadheads at Tampa Stadium brought their numbers beyond another group of British rock nobility the Beatles 1965 show at Shea Stadium. John Kaladner of Geffen Records said of Led Zeppelin, quote, In my opinion, next to the Beatles, they're the most influential band in history. They influence the way music is on records. End quote. And Rolling Stone Magazine reported, that Led Zeppelin only had two rivals in the quest for the title of the world's best rock and roll band, the publication's namesake, the Rolling Stones, and yet even another band out of Jolly Old England, The Who. And also like The Who, Led Zeppelin developed a reputation for being destructive to their lodgings. Namely, John Bonham who is said to have driven his motorcycle through a room at the Riot House on Sunset Boulevard. And the Tokyo Hilton banned the group for life because of the damages done to their facilities. Led Zeppelin was on course to rule the world until a concert in Nuremberg, Germany, where three songs into the first set, John Bonham collapsed from his drum throne, resulting in rumors of substance abuse. Hoping it to be a singular incident, the band continued to plan for future appearances until late September, when Bonham reportedly drank four quadruple vodkas before a rehearsal at Bray Studios and just kept drinking. The next day, Bonham was found dead by cause of asphyxiation from vomiting. No other drugs were found in his system. The tour was canceled December 4th, 1980, just four days before John Lennon was assassinated in New York City. A statement released by Led Zeppelin said, quote, we wish it to be known that the loss of our dear friend and the deep sense of undivided harmony felt by ourselves and our manager have led us to decide that we could not continue as we were. End quote. Led Zeppelin was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame 15 years later by two of their biggest fans, Steven Tyler and Joe Perry of Aerosmith. In addition to being part of my top favorite bands to drive to, Led Zeppelin is also credited as being inspiration to such successful rock groups as Rush, Deep Purple, Black Sabbath, The Black Crows, Tool, Dream Theater, The Ramones, Soundgarden, Pearl Jam, Nirvana, Megadeth, The Cult, and Smashing Pumpkins. And one last thing, folks, I just wanted to take a second to explain a little bit as some people have been confused by the new numbering of episodes this season. It had been brought to my attention that the way that I was labeling shows in season one, like EO2.3 gets more confusing as the episode count rises. So I am now numbering by their chronological release. However, if I change the titles of old shows on our feed, it releases the old episode as if it were a new one. So my apologies for any reruns that have come through the feed lately. I am trying to pepper the changes so you are getting new material more often than old. And also, I'd like to thank all of you for listening. Our numbers are up slightly from this time last year, which has encouraged me to release daily Scattered Curiosities on Twitter. You can follow us at Albert Einstone. like to help us keep the curiosities coming, please rate us on iTunes, SoundCloud, or your favorite podcast platform. And don't forget to visit scatteredcuriosities.com for exclusive free downloads and to donate to the show.